0: This week, we are unveiling the secret sauce of one of the hottest battery storage companies today, Form Energy. Form is developing a metal air storage system that could last for weeks. It just closed a $200 million venture round, and it's now unveiling how the battery works for the first time. And that unveiling comes courtesy of another podcast we produce, The Interchange. That show is hosted by Shale Khan of Energy Impact Partners. He is uh, a longtime collaborator, a truly great thinker in the world of decarbonization. If you don't listen to that show, do it, subscribe, and uh, you'll get lots of deep dives from shale and guests on the forces behind the climate tech surge, including with executives and inventors and people who are pushing the envelope in energy tech So enjoy this conversation. Before we get into it, a quick word. We are brought to you by SunGrow. As a leading provider of PV inverter solutions across the world, SunGrow has delivered more than 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 154 gigawatts in total across the globe. SunGrow is also providing energy storage systems to some of the largest projects in the U.S., like the Chisholm Grid Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Learn about SunGrow's energy storage solutions by emailing them at info at sungrowamericas.com. We're also brought to you by s Electric. Non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power. And they can be designed for your unique needs. s Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years, and it helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs, even if those energy needs are non-wired. Learn more at snc.com nwa
1: this has been private uh the entire history of Form until last week so i've been just since the announcement publicly walking around telling everyone i know iron air iron air iron air it's an iron air battery uh so very excited to be able to say that publicly but what is it what is the iron air battery that you are building and why did it win the race
2: yeah at, at its simplest description we are rusting and unrusting iron electrochemically um it required uh, bringing best practices, uh, most recent uh, techniques um, for for science to understand and characterize this chemistry, and to really bring it into the modern age, if you will. But it was also a, a known chemistry um, that essentially was sitting there waiting to be brought into the modern age.
1: Form Energy is the hottest multi-day energy storage company to have just unstealthed. We have the details. This is the interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm, Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I'm excited for this one this week. I've known Mateo Jaramillo, who's our guest this week, for the better part of a decade since he was leading the energy storage, actually the stationary energy storage business at Tesla back in its early days, pre-Powerwall. He left Tesla in 2016 and started looking for a new challenge to tackle. He ultimately landed, as you will hear, on the challenge of very long duration energy storage, not long duration like eight hours or 12 hours, but days or weeks or more. It's a big, thorny, long-term problem, as you'll hear as we try to decarbonize the power sector. And we haven't really had mature solutions for it historically. In May 2017, about four years ago, in a few months, we had Matteo on this podcast right as he was starting to pull together a company focused around this problem. A lot has happened since then. The company, which ultimately became Form Energy, launched, developing a proprietary battery unlike anything else we've ever seen in the market. And Form has been pretty private historically. They haven't been very forthcoming with the technology or exactly the approach that they were taking. Apart from saying that they were building a quote-unquote metal air battery, they held the technology pretty close to the vest. But no more. Last week, Form Lifted the veil. The company announced a $200 million Series D financing led by ArcelorMittal, the world's largest steelmaker. You'll understand why. And in the process, they finally made public the technology that they're pursuing, which is an iron air chemistry. You'll hear more about that from Matteo. For full disclosure, I am an investor in Forum. I led EIP's investment in the company last year and proudly participated in this financing round that I just mentioned that the company just closed. So I am admittedly biased, but I think once you hear a bit more from Mateo, you may be as well. So with no further ado, Mateo Jaramillo. Mateo, welcome.
2: Thanks, Shell. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, well, we we're having you back on this podcast. You were on, uh, I looked it up in May 2017 is when we had you on before and my recollection at the time. So you had left Tesla already at that point. And I think you had already identified as your next big challenge, the problem of very long duration energy storage. I don't know yet whether you had actually formed a company, which at that point would have been named something different from form energy, but you were, it seemed like you were in the early days of like deciding this is what you're going to dedicate years, maybe decades of your life to. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah, th- that's definitely right. Um, that would have been the time. Um, it was certainly something I was thinking about a lot right then. And you say the problem of long-duration energy storage, but I, but maybe that's uh, being very generous. The future problem of long-duration energy right. storage is probably what I was thinking about most. Uh, you know, It really was not on the radar. Um, and even the term long-duration storage didn't didn't have the... Currency that it does today uh, it, it's an it's an underdetermined term, which maybe we'll come back to but uh, but certainly at the time um, that was a that was a very new new idea for people to be talking about, just given the nascency of storage in general, even then
1: right so let's start then by running through a bit of history between then and now, so at that point you're identifying a future problem that wasn't clearly a problem yet and a market that didn't exist for it uh, and technologies that might be needed but certainly didn't exist yet. And then, you know, as of today, as of a week ago, you sort of finally did a public unveil of Form Energy, which which has been a company for four years or something, um, but had been pretty stealthy. So now the world knows more or less what you're up to. So give us the kind of uh, blow by blow between May 2017 and, and now.
2: Uh, yeah. Hop, skip and a jump. Uh, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Basically to- nothing, right? to- totally linear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, r- really where it came from was, you know, me and my co-founders, um, you know, we were all sort of thinking about this at the same time and came at it in different ways. Um, I had left Tesla a few months prior, uh, without any specific idea for what to work on. Um, I knew that it was going to be energy related. It, it's sort of the only field that I care much about. Um, and in many ways I just I, I kind of kept returning to um, some of the things that I observed about the industry, especially over the last year or two while I was at Tesla, and then went out and have it, had a number of conversations with contacts in the industry then to explore some of the just high-level ideas that I had. You know, w- w- would this make sense? Are these real problems? How do you view these topics? And um, and that's really where it started. Um, you know, really, the, the goal here is to solve problems, Right not to invent technologies that have no markets. And um, and that's how we all started. You know, my, my co-founders, Marco and Ted and Billy and Yet and I, um, none of us is interested in working on something that that has no entitlement to compete and to uh, operate in the market and to solve big problems. In other words, have a big impact. And so where we started was, well, what is the biggest problem you could solve with energy storage? if you could wave a wand, right? Sort of the thought experiment approach. Um, and I and it was pretty clear based on those conversations, but also just by looking at that data, looking at the system, um, that if you could invent the kind of energy storage that would allow renewables to replace the thermal generation, specifically the coal, but also the natural gas, then that would be the biggest, not only problem you could probably solve, but also probably the biggest market you could go after simultaneously, right? That's a Total addressable market in the trillions of dollars, if you look at just the capex. Um, and that's setting aside the incremental amounts of renewables that you could enable to be deployed um, into that market. And so that was really the, the way that we thought about it was um, well, what why are those problems really? And and how might you go about solving them? And you know, we we sort of it's easy to categorize something as a problem. These things are very complicated, of course um, you know, it's, it's probably a better way to say that it's a, it's a challenge, right? We're, we're challenged by our times, um, where we do need to decarbonize, where we do have legacy assets, where we have new assets, um, which are sort of structured in very different ways in terms of the, the financial models, um, that, that they bring to bear with zero cost fuel. Um, and so, you know, thinking about, well, how do we solve the biggest challenges? How do we we sort of unwind them and then put, put the system back together in a, in a helpful way. Um, you know, the, the thermal resources provide reliability into the system. Now that's not a problem per se, right? We all need it. We all rely on it. Um, we rely on electricity to be produced exactly when we need it. Um, but the way it's being produced is simply not sustainable and certainly not sustainable over the next, you know, 20 or 30 years. Um, and so those conversations that I went out and had, and I relied on my contacts, uh, from my time in Tesla. And I, you know, I was like, basically called, called up CEOs of utilities that I knew. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing. Would you mind sitting down with me for 30 or 45 minutes and just give me your candid, your candid feedback. Um, and I won't, I won't name them, but, um, you know, these are very prominent CEOs who are very generous with their time. And it's always surprising, you know, when you ask people, uh, for their time, how, how generous they can be. Um, and, uh, and they welcomed me in and I, you know, hopped on a plane a few times and, I went to see these folks and I described the kind of thing that I was working on at least in my head which was, you know, this kind of of energy storage system that that would be cheap enough to um allow renewables to bridge gaps of multiple days maybe even weeks um and and functionally replace the thermal generation in their fleet and and every single person I talked to said, "Yes, that's interesting." Um and as soon as you're ready to really, you know, think about what that might actually mean, we're we're here to to be a thought partner on this. And so, um, you know, for better or for worse, they encouraged me, I guess, uh, or I, or as maybe an entrepreneur, I heard the words I wanted to hear, <laughs> which which were, um, yeah, you might you you might have something here, uh, you know. In other words, um, it's not something that we wouldn't support, right? And it's sort of like that line from Dumb and Dumber. And I was like, you know, so you're telling me I got a chance, right? It's like, right. <laughs> more not like- not something I, we like, wouldn't support. It's like yeah.
1: a, to an entrepreneur, you're like, aha,
2: <laughs> it's, uh, I got it, right, uh, done. Um, but, but that's really sort of how it came out and it was very conversational. And to be clear, none of those utility leaders had ever sat around thinking about a battery that might run for a couple hundred hours, right? That, that simply wasn't on their radar. Um, but when, when I was asking about what their problems were, you know, it all comes back to the transition, right? How do I transition out of a legacy fleet into something new, which I want to do because it's the cheapest thing to do, but I'm, I'm sort of limited in some of these ways and it's not that I'm limited right now, obviously, you can put a plan in place and we're deploying a ton of renewables and, and that path will continue for some time, but there is a there is a time horizon on that, right? And you can't sort of in, run that out to 100% renewables without trying to think hard about new kinds of solutions that are showing up. And so I, I, in many ways, you know, we were having a, a very early version of the conversation that's happening out there, you know, very actively today, of course, you know, what do, what does the end state look like?
1: Right. So one of the things I, I thought was interesting watching Forum come together in the early days, just through through knowing you, was that you founded the company off of this challenge, problem statement challenge, whatever you want to call it. Um, wasn't clear at that point, even talking to the utilities, like anybody you were talking to, it wasn't clear that it was possible. You're just saying, what if it were possible? Would this be interesting? And you basically founded the company before knowing whether it was possible. You didn't have the technology pathway laid out at that point yet it wasn't entirely clear that this could be done it was just clear that if it could be done it would be interesting
2: that that's right so, and uh, and not only that we were funded before we had uh, <laughs> anything that was in hand that looked like it might be possible right it was it was again a thesis right and a team that um, was not naive or star-eyed about uh, what the challenge challenges might be uh, in front of us um, but we all agreed that if we could figure this out then it would be worthwhile you're right
1: And so maybe give us a brief window into the process from there. So you, you start a company, you, you basically, you know, merge with another company that is pursuing basically the same thing that your co-founders in form were in parallel pursuing a similar idea. You guys merge, you, you get some early funding. Now you have to actually develop a technology, um, you know, it's easy to like snap forward to today where you have a technology you're unveiling and a lot of capital to deploy behind it. But um, what did that process look like to figure out like what actually might work here?
2: Well, it was very structured. It was, it was far from haphazard. We didn't have the solution in hand, but we knew the criterion that it would take to succeed. Um, and so we structured our approach through that um, uh, very conscientiously. And we did that in a couple of different ways. One, from a hardware perspective, uh, we were Convinced, you know, I'll spare a ton of the details, but we were convinced that electrochemical was was the way to go, not mechanical or uh, thermal or um, you know, pure chemical. Um, so, so we were focused on electrochemical solutions. And every battery has basically the same components, and and those components are an anode, a cathode, an electrolyte, and some type of architecture. And um, coming up with a mnemonic, and this was partially to sort of hold ourselves to it, but also to convey to our board how to think about these kinds of things. Um, we came up with a structure. This was actually Billy's um, suggestion. Uh, we came up with a structure, which was the race, um, R-A-C-E-R for architecture, because we like misspelling. Architecture. Sure. Architecture. Um, <laughs> the A for the anode, the um, C for the cathode, and the E for the electrolyte. And we basically had uh, you know a race, so to speak, um, to figure out which uh, of the candidates that we were evaluating um, would lead to uh, uh, the most likely solution to succeed. And so we we ran that race um, process for about a year uh, before we really down-selected. Um, at the same time, um, it's not like we were just sticking our finger in the air and saying, oh, we're racing towards some unknown point in the future. Um, in fact, um, quite to the contrary, uh, we, uh, we and by we, I mean Mark, my co-founder Marco Ferrara, Marco built the, uh, the, the modeling tools that enabled us to really have a sensitive understanding for what would solve in the market. And um, the only way to compare... Between storage mediums, um, in terms of you know one is better than another, um, some qualitative sense there is in a financial model. There, there really is no other way to do it. Um, you can't look at a spec sheet and say, ah, this capex and this efficiency and this you know this self discharge or whatever else it is um, is better than another one. It, it, it's really unintelligible to just the, the human mind to look at that thing. You have to run it in a in a pretty complex uh, co-optimization uh, sort of dispatch model. Um, so how does it actually perform? How is it actually uh, dispatched into a real system and uh, in a financial model? So how is it dispatched into the financial model, right? That returns are really the only way to sort of compare one one approach versus another. And so um, we really had a, a a very high fidelity map for for what success needed to look like. There were some trade-offs we couldn't make, um, and there were some trade-offs that it was very clear that we could make. Um, and that was thanks to um, that er- very early work on the modeling side um, that Marco did uh, for us as a team. So, um, so it was a very structured thing. I- again, we we didn't just sort of you know find a cool technology and, and try and fit it into the market. That uh, we very deeply engaged in the market. Um, in fact, uh, over that first year, we engaged probably fifty different uh, utilities or system operators or or plant owners um, to really get data that described their problems and then to see how uh, the solution that we were thinking of um, would Uh, address those problems again in a financial model
1: right and so you came to some pretty hard conclusions that i think a lot of like system modelers who are looking at the role of long duration storage have also come to ultimately about what what would a battery have to look like what are the specs you would have to hit in order for this to make any sense can you lay out like at the high level what those criteria are
2: yeah, I mean, one, it's been pretty fantastic to see other really smart people more or less confirm what we started on a few years ago. Uh, you know, the paper that Jesse Jenkins and Nestor came out with in in uh, in Nature, for example. Uh, the, the short answer is uh, you need to be at least a hundred hours duration, and these things go hand in hand. You need to be about twenty dollars a kilowatt hour capex. That that's all in at the system level.
1: And let's just for folks who are not like super steeped in in those uh, storage capex numbers. Twenty dollars per kilowatt hour refers to the capital cost of the system, as compared to uh, a lithium-ion battery getting installed on the grid, where the capital cost today is probably ten times that, maybe a little bit less. Yep,
2: yeah, that, that's right. And and also to be clear, <clears throat> it is everything, right? It's everything from the DC battery cell all the way up to the medium voltage, uh, it, inclusive of of that entire chain, right? Power electronics and um, controls and uh, project warranty costs and development costs and absolutely everything that's loaded into that project. Um, everything that goes into the CapEx.
1: Right. So just to kind of reiterate the magnitude of the challenge, then you need to design a battery in order for this to work by your own calculations. You need to design a battery that costs on the order of a 10th, what a lithium ion battery costs and needs to be able to last for a hundred plus hours at a time. So that was what the race was all about defining what could, could meet those characteristics. Um, that said, I think one of the other sort of core things to understand that's not super intuitive about how batteries like this function is that if you can do that, if you can get extremely cheap capital costs, you can sacrifice things like round trip efficiency to some degree.
2: Yep, that's right. And understanding how you can sacrifice that uh, or, or trade it off, you know, we don't have to be so bloody about it, uh, maybe, uh, how, how you trade that off. Um, that's a very important question to ask. Not just what is the absolute percentage of round trip efficiency that you need to be h- hitting, but also how, what is the shape of that trade off curve. So how does one dollar of capex trade for one point of efficiency, wherever you are on the curve, right? So so you think about that, um, and and that is the kind of question that is extremely enabling to efficient work in the lab, so that the technical team doesn't have to wonder how they should be making that trade-off. They have a budget. They, they, they know they can trade off. In fact, they're they're fully empowered to make the trade-offs. We want them to make those right trade-offs. They just need to know which ones to make and how to how to think about that. So um so that all sort of falls out of that um the the part of the financial modeling um and technic- economic and optimization modeling that that Marco built um, for us for sure. All right.
1: So with no further ado then let's talk about the technology that won the race. Which is I, you know, you've been. This has been private uh, the entire history of forum until last week. So I've been just since the announcement publicly walking around telling everyone I know, iron air, iron air, iron air. It's an iron air battery. Uh, So very excited to be able to say that publicly. But uh, what is it? What is the iron air battery that you are building, and why did it win the race?
2: Yeah, at, at its simplest description, we are rusting and unrusting iron electrochemically, and iron obviously is one of the most abundant substances on Earth. I think. It's the um, substance most mined except for coal um, and the earth essentially is a ball of iron, right? That more or less, that's, that's what we're sitting on. And uh, so there's a lot of it. And there's a lot of it in every continent, um, which is important. And, um and it's because of the abundance there it's also it's very cheap and because of the abundance it's also very safe for humans right we wouldn't have evolved to to have that be something that's you know deeply toxic for humans um and it's the metal that humans have worked with most right in history <laughs> uh, we've been we've working on steel it's sort of the the foundation of the metallurgical uh, in, industry it's sort of deeply embedded in in humans brains uh, th- this relationship with iron um uh, so you know sort of very very compelling for a lot of reasons Um, and to hit those cost targets that you're talking about, you know, the, the $20 per kilowatt hour all in, well, that means that for the active materials, the stuff that sort of gives off and receives charge, you have to be far less than that. You you have to be in the single digits per kilowatt hour of just, you know, active material. And, and again, by point of comparison, you know, since everybody sort of knows lithium ion, you know, the unprocessed, uh, materials, the active materials for lithium ion sitting on a table are sort of 30-ish dollars per kilowatt hour, right? So already with Lithium mine, you're, you're sort of t- too expensive. And that's before you really touch it or synthesize it or turn it into a battery or anything else, add the balance of plant. Um, <clears throat> so we knew that we were only looking for things that had a cost entitlement in the low single digits per kilowatt hour. And and there are very few things that sort of hit that um, hit that threshold. And and iron certainly is one of them. Another is sulfur. And that was the other chemistry that we were evaluating. In in fact, that's the chemistry for which we received an RPE award um, to to study in in detail. Um, And that was for a flow iteration of that uh, particular chemistry. Um, Now, it turns out there are just some more science challenges uh, associated with bringing that embodiment to successful life. And so Um, so that was, that one just took a little bit longer and in the race, it it stumbled in a couple of these areas, right? You, you you can sort of line up the anode and the cathode electrolyte, but now there's a membrane that's required to sort of keep the analyte and the cathode separate. And, um, it's, it's more complicated and it required, uh, scientific invention, um, in a way that the iron air, uh, iteration of things does not and did not. Um, it required, uh, bringing best practices, uh, most recent uh, techniques um, for uh, for science to understand and characterize this chemistry and to really bring it into the modern age, if you will. Um, but it didn't require us to, out of whole cloth, invent around science problems that uh, that nobody had ever invented around before. It required very clever engineering, of course, um, and still continues to require very clever engineering. Um, but it was also a a, a known chemistry um, that essentially was sitting there waiting to be brought into the modern age.
1: In fact, you're not the first. You're not the first to to build an iron air battery, right? Like it was. It, it dates back to what the '70s or the '60s. There was NASA research on it.
2: Yeah, it date, dates back to exactly that period. There were there were a couple of different efforts. I think there there was an effort in Sweden and then um, in the U.S. as well. Uh, the Department of Energy, in fact, paid for some of the the original research around it, um, and Westinghouse uh, performed that. Um And they showed that it could be a quite well performing chemistry uh but in the end not for the applications that they had in mind, primarily for the automotive world so um it was more, more or less discarded um and left i would say underexplored um really was sitting there, and it had no relevance of the market until the conditions sort of became present that we now are living under, which is we have really low cost but intermittent renewables. Um, and intermittent over different time periods, right? Not all intermittencies are exactly the same. And, um, and those conditions, you know, you could sort of see them coming a few years ago, but they weren't really present until basically now, and and maybe even (laughs) over the next few years, right? But, but the system, right, the electric system operates, has to operate, um, on planning cycles that take into account where things are going. And, you know, one of the things of course, that, people steeped in the renewable industry love to point out is how much faster things change than anybody had ever guessed. And even the most aggressive prognosticators were wrong about how fast things were changing. And, and yet we still seem to make that mistake time and time and time again. And, you know, when we were starting the company four years ago, we were determined not to make that mistake. And in fact, to say, well, things are going to change faster than we can expect. And we expect, um, uh, conditions to look like what we're forecasting them to look like f- probably faster than we would imagine. Nevertheless, we all committed more or less ten years <laughs> to to the venture and saying, "Well, we're all just gonna we're gonna assume it's gonna take this long, um, and and we're gonna go into it." And and no small number of investors um, also believed that the market would take a long time to materialize. You know, w- investors whose names would sort of imply that they are more aggressive than they actually were uh, were were very pessimistic. I I would say about the rate of change and. Uh, You know, why would you ever need, you know, tens of hours, much less hundreds of hours of of, uh, energy storage or, you know, deeply renewable grids aren't going to show up for next 20 or 30 years?
0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. This year SunGrow is supplying more than 1.5 gigawatt hours of energy storage to projects across North America. Among these projects is the Chisholm Grid Battery Storage Project in Fort Worth, Texas. Chisholm Grid will use SunGrow's advanced converters and controls in a long-term services contract to meet the demanding ERCOT market conditions while reducing operating costs and extending the lifespan of the assets. To learn more about SunGrow's work in the battery storage business, email them at info at we're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Solving power related challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Are you going to select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way? And even with dedicated in-house resources, getting to that conclusion can be uncertain and time consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with confidence by working with an integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. I think it's useful, maybe for you to give
1: folks a picture in their heads of what uh, a form energy system is going to look like in the field. Like, what is a you know? Let's just say you're because uh, 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 this could be a Ten megawatt, thousand megawatt hour battery. What are we picturing?
2: Yeah. Um, well, we're we're picturing uh, essentially individual what we call modules that are about a meter cubed, and then those um, essentially are stacked. And those each of those modules is a few kilowatts, a few hundred kilowatt hours. You know, exact specs we're hitting it down now. Um, but then you have many of those in the field, and and the very first version of that will be enclosed in a sort of a light structure. Um, but, but that's really just to sort of keep the, the basic elements out. This does not require clean room level, uh, sort of air purity or, you know, humidity controls or even temperature controls. So it's a pretty rough type, type of um, structure that's there. Um and And it doesn't look like much to tell you the truth. Uh, it looks pretty basic. <laughs> you know boxes inside of a shed, uh, sort of the simple version of things. um But these are things that, of course, you need to make a lot of, and you have to make them uh, very efficiently and um so all of the design work that we do um has that in mind that you know design for manufacturability um and scalability, you know, not just sort of the, the architectures themselves and how it how it is manufactured, um, but also the materials that are selected, uh, the tools off of which those materials are going to come. Um, you know, they all, ha- they cannot require a bunch of bespoke, uh, sort of manufacturing techniques or, or production methods, um, that, um, t- to be invented in order for this to succeed. Um, and I want to go back just a little bit as well to, you know, that, that bake-off that we had, that, that race that we did, um, part of why we were able to sort of tee it up the way that we did and, and sort of make the assessments that we were is that, I think we understood from the beginning that there was always going to be a trade-off. There's always a trade-off. Um, nothing is perfect, right? There is no panacea in this market. And um, you know, I'll, I have a deep affinity for for batteries, for energy storage in general. And you know, I've come to see batteries in some ways like people um, that they're all flawed in some way. Uh, the trick is to pair them with you know with their partner, the market, the application that just doesn't care about those flaws. And you know that that that's you know for me that it's a very personal thing. I'm I, I'm flawed <laughs> my I happen to be married to a woman my wife Virginia uh, who uh, manages to not care so much about my flaws and um, and that's why that's why it works' I've been married seventeen years now um hopefully for a lot more longer um and so you know we take a pretty pragmatic view here we we're, we're not you know I really react uh, strongly against the use of the term holy grail um anytime you know people are talking about n- new technology of any kind really but also in particular uh, for energy storage because I mean, one, it, it, nobody's ever found the Holy grail. Um, and it's, it's probably a, a fool's errand to think you could find it. Um, and two, um, we don't need Holy grails. We need things that work for the thing we need them to work for, <laughs> not, not to be the perfect instance of, you know, for everybody at all times in all applications. Um, and so, you know, I want to be really clear about that too. Like we, as a team, we didn't delude ourselves about that. Uh, we were extremely, um, aware of, of the fact that this was inevitably going to probably involve trade-offs and, um, and we were always comfortable with that. And as long as the math, right, as long as the modeling said that we should make a trade off, then we were okay with that. Um, and I think what we have found over the last few years is that we've been able to, uh, by being very transparent about the methods that we have for that modeling, um, we've been able to um, bring a lot of people along in that thought process. And I can tell you that many of the conversations that we had with those utilities initially um, were along along the lines of you know some of the stuff that you see out there today. I don't know if I'd ever need that. That that doesn't sound quite right, and and what we saw over and over again is that these entities would go away and think about it, and about a month later they would call us back and they said, actually, you know what, we're thinking about it, and we did some back of the envelope stuff, and we think we do want to have a conversation here, and then we would engage engaged into sort of a, a, another layer of of analytics, and you know Marco and his team did a phenomenal job, um, really building the right tools and and building compelling um, uh, sets of analytical work uh, to really. Convey the the meaning and the value of these kinds of assets, these new assets, um, into the market. That's a good segue.
1: Let's talk about the meaning of these assets in the market. So, I think at the at the high level, when you when you think about it from a system level, I think there's sort of increasing recognition, thanks in part to the types of studies that you mentioned from like Jesse Jenkins and Nestor and and a bunch of others. That look if we're going to try to get to a really high penetration renewables future, eighty percent renewables or whatever it might be. At that point, you start running into really big challenges with, uh, with, with intermittency at longer durations than just diurnal, right? Longer durations than just daily sun setting, wind stop blowing kind of problems. But I think there's a lot of people hear that and then think okay, the point at which we need energy storage that lasts 100 hours is once we hit. Eighty percent on any given system or any given grid, and so between here and there, there's jet. You know, there's going to be some distance, right? We're not approaching eighty percent most of the world yet, and I think one of the things that that um, form has done particularly well through Marco's team and all the modeling that you do is sort of identifying. Well, well yes, at that point we're going to need a ton of this stuff, but in the meantime, there are a whole bunch of different applications where it pencils economically. Um, even if the system itself is not already at 80, 90 percent, so I want to talk through some of those. But am I characterizing right the like reaction that you get from the market a lot of the time?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, we we hear that a lot, um, you know. But but twenty thirty five twenty forty is sending postcards uh, back in time all over the place, and they're they're there to be to be seen. And you know you can see that in in curtailments um, that are out there, you know, in congestion pricing. Um, you can see it in uh in events like polar vortices or what happened in texas um, so there's there 's lots of evidence out there that you know these these types of assets these new you know, which nobody has ever sort of put into the system before um have a valuable role to play uh not just you know ten or fifteen years and, and on in the future but also right now if you if you find the right partners um, and the right use cases to go after for sure.
1: So can you give an example or two, maybe not specific, but, you know, give me a, a heuristic for, for example, a utility who might be in a situation where it would make sense for them to deploy hundreds of hours of storage in the next four or five years?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, the the simplest ones are where coal is getting, I mean, coal is getting retired, you know, across the country. There's still 200 gigawatts of it um, in, in the US today. And, and the trade-off for the last 20 years, more or less, has been, of course, that you replace that coal with natural gas. And um, what is particularly challenging is that that trade is maybe not going to be exactly how things go for the next 20 years. And that's not how we get the next 200 gigawatts of coal um, out of the system. And you, again, you can sort of see, see some, some early previews of this. You know, there are regulatory bodies, public utility commissions of states that have rejected combined cycle gas plants as essentially the proposed replacement for coal, which is coming out of the system. And so you sort of ask the question, well, what happens there? How, how do you, in the end, replace the extremely valuable reliability function that those thermal assets are providing today? Uh, we we want the cheap renewables, of course, um, but we also want the, the complete reliability there. And um, And it doesn't take an 80% renewable grid in order to sort of have a lot of these questions become extremely relevant if I'm also retiring coal faster than I thought it was going to be. And I can't put in more natural gas, right? That, that's sort of
1: right. And and you're talking about trying to maintain reliability over the course of years during which you can have multi-day weather events like we are seeing increasingly frequently and all sorts of things that can happen and, and ensuring reliability over longer time horizons becomes especially
2: difficult. That, that, that's right. And um, so what what's going to happen, those those assets, essentially, their life gets extended until some other uh, technology comes along. And, and that's exactly the conversation to, into which we've stepped uh, in many different locations throughout the country. And increasingly, over the last year or two, uh, with counterparties that I would have Thought would have taken you know a decade to come around on some of these, and they're they're starting to be you know much more transparent about um, the fact that they are in the planning stages now uh, you know very actively, the, the most conservative utilities historically conservative utilities thinking about well what does come next um and how do I deliver low cost reliable, and increasingly renewable electricity to my to my customers yeah, I mean, not to get too far into the the policy world,
1: but as an example you know. The Biden would like to push an 80% by 2030 clean electricity standard in the United States in order to get to 80% by 2030. Now, not every utility is going to have to hit that. It will vary. Some will be higher. Some will be lower. But if that's the average, and that's by the end of this decade, then you can imagine why, one, it becomes difficult to build new combined cycle gas that should have a useful life of 25 or 30 years and two why you're going to need to figure out how to retire a bunch of existing thermal assets especially coal pretty quickly and figure out how to maintain reliability and you know cost effectiveness for customers despite that
2: right yeah exactly and and i think that having the pressure and the leadership from the federal government is fantastic i'll also say that you know the utilities are finding ways to move there's of course um their own public utility commissions their own stakeholders their own investors right their own ratepayers um who are also pressuring them so it's it's not like everything is betting on whether or not the federal government steps up and implements a clean energy standard right um that would be great if they did um, but I think what we're what we're seeing is that that pressure is all over the board and it's also within the executive teams at these utilities now there's been a large amount of turnover just in the executive sort of suite, if you will um, and the new vanguard of these utilities they they are now occupy those seats because they are the ones who are Tasked with transitioning their companies over the next five to ten years, and there, that's how they're thinking. Um, that they know that's why they're there, and that's the challenge that they've that they've accepted that they're taking on. And so, you know, we see you know, increasingly that just that that, that message and that uh, mandate is really coming out of the the executive room as well.
1: And so. Let's talk about that scenario maybe in a little bit more detail. So I'm a utility. I'm I'm gonna ret- I'm an early retire. I'm just gonna retire some operating coal assets that are providing baseload power and reliability. Um, and I wanna replace them exclusively with zero carbon generation. The modeling that you guys do spits out not just here's a bunch of form batteries that you should deploy, but actually like a full optimization of a of a a variety of different technologies. So maybe talk about how a portfolio gets constructed of different technologies that can then truly be a one-for-one replacement for coal economically.
2: Yeah, and usually we're taking a, a pretty, as you say, holistic view of the system. We are the tools that that we have, firmware, which Mark and his team have built, um, are effectively capacity expansion models, so IRP light models, if you will, uh, where you where we we ingest all of the key performance parameters and costs of every asset in their fleet. And then they tell us, okay, these are the scenarios that we want you to model with these types of sensitivities, um, using these kinds of assets, uh, and, and then we run and model it and then we sort of share the results. And we're very transparent again about the, the tools and techniques that we're using and, and, you know, what the math says, and almost always they're doing the same thing on their end. So we sort of, you know, share the results simultaneously and say, oh, I like, you know, what you got here. And, you know, we, sometimes we, we resolve things, but by and large, it's all, it's all very, um, uh, agreeing in, in the results. And, and what spits out is exactly that it it, it is a portfolio. And, and one of the things that we do is we will run a scenario that has no form multi-day storage in it. And you get sort of a, a distribution of the assets there uh, and different builds, um, of those assets. And then we do another run where we inject the multi-day storage and you see what happens to the distribution of those, of those assets and, you know, how much you built of each. And, um, Always what we see is that by having multi-day storage, it lowers the total system cost and it does in fact um, uh, change some of the distributions of the builds that you do. Um, One thing that multi-day storage does is uh, it reduces the need for overbuilding of renewables. So you end up building far fewer of the renewables, um, still a lot. In fact, incrementally, you you build, of course, a ton, um, but you're not required to go overbuild in the ways that you are required if the only storage tool that you have at your disposal is lithium-ion and cheap lithium-ion at that. Um, so that's one one thing that we see. The other is that um, on the lithium-ion point, you always want a combination of those two kinds of assets. You want lithium-ion in the system and you want multi-day storage. And this is not so surprising right. if you sort of you know take the intuitive view here. We ended up with two assets of uh, gas uh, as well. So we have combined cycle plants, you know, high efficiency, high capex, and then open cycle plants, you know, low efficiency. Uh, or lower efficiency and um, and lower capex, and about equal amounts of each right about three hundred gigawatts of each in the entire u s system and um and so so to get to a lowest levelized cost of of the system, you want to have uh two pretty different types of assets uh, that are doing similar functions is you know it's pretty intuitive and that has been borne out in the in the modeling itself as well so so we see a distribution of um, certainly multiple types of storage you know again lithium ion, cheap lithium ion, which is what're model we, we model very cheap lithium ion in our system because <laughs> we think that 's wh- where it 's going to go um, and then of course for, for multi day storage and then you know wind water solar uh, carbon captured uh, natural gas uh, modular nuclear reactors uh, whatever the utility wants to model uh, we'll model of course the coal and the natural gas um, as well and um, and so it 's a pretty robust uh, understanding after this process um, for what they' are what their system looks like today and what what it can look like in the future and sort of what the trade-offs are between the different types of assets.
1: Okay. So I think we've had enough interesting conversations that I get to have a brief two-minute conversation about semantics, which is going to be near and dear to your heart, but we're going to force our listeners through it, which is talking about the term that people use often, which is long-duration energy storage or loads or LDES or whatever they call it. Um, And how that term has sort of become a little too broad to be valuable and why there's a need for a different term, which you've been using multi-day storage or MDS as a distinction. You know, it seems to me that this has real, this matters in the market because we've started to see procurements, for example, for quote unquote long duration storage that say, you know, anything over eight hours counts. So it's like eight to infinity hours of storage get classified together. So how do you think about the categories of, Under the big umbrella of long duration storage, and where form fits.
2: Well, I mean, you you put your finger right there on the point. I mean, a a more subtle definition is required to be useful. And because if I use one term to refer to everything from eight hours of lithium ion to you know 150 hours of multi day storage from form and everything in between, flow batteries and compressed air and you name it, um, well, it's not particularly useful as a term, right, to refer refer to it. Um, I I think we do need to be precise about the function in the system that is needed. And and these are all you know emerging terms in in different areas. Um, But how, you know, what do we need and how do we refer to it um, to get the level of reliability uh, that the system requires? Um, How do we define that? Um, How do we put that as a product into the system? And, you know, the regulated utilities of course are in a position where they can Sort of come up, come up with that on their own, and they can value it properly. And and there you go, they're, they're the integrated utility. They realize all the benefits um, without maybe even precisely sort of um, defining all of them. But they they realize everything as a whole, so they they benefit it. But the wholesale markets um, do require that, uh, and and especially for the you know those competitive markets and for people to show up and bring technology solutions in those markets, it does require that um, that we are precise about that. Um, so so that reliability, you know, this notion of clean firm. You know, firm and clean, what what does that mean? How firm? Right? Are we modeling for, are we solving for firm once every 10 years? Is it once every 30 years events that we're going for? Is it once in a hundred years? Um were those backward looking years, are those forward looking years, right? All of these things need to be taken into account and um and and more precision certainly is required. Um but but we would say sort of the minimum that's required is is to identify that there are multi-day problems that need to be solved in order to provide these levels of reliability or firmness, if you like, um, into the system. And so that's why we prefer that term.
1: Uh, You've just given me my opening. I went back and looked at the emails that you and I were sending back and forth back in your early days when you were founding the company and you were looking for company names as you were combining forces with your co-founders. And you had talked about trying to make renewables firm. And I found an email that I had sent to you with uh, what in retrospect is a terrible idea for a company name based on firmness. And uh, the thing that I care about firmness in is my tofu. So I looked up my favorite brand of extra firm tofu, which is Nasoya, and suggested that you call the company Nasoya Energy. And your response was very diplomatic. Um, though I will note that you did not name the company Nasoya Energy, though. Now I get to suggest it again, because now you're talking about trying to come up with terms for, uh, a category of technology. So if you want extra firm renewables,
2: you should get Nasoya storage. Yeah. Maybe that will be the product offering shale. We'll call it Nasoya, the, the Nasoya product. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you, you heard it here. Um, all right. La- last question for you. I guess I want to step back a little bit because you, you've had an interesting experience of entrepreneurship, um through form here where you know today it's it's clearly a different environment if you want to be starting a hard tech company that is climate focused is going to require a lot of capital and probably a lot of time and it's going to be really difficult um you know with with capital abundant and commitments to climate all over the place and 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 all that and especially now you know form having raised hundreds of millions of dollars it it may seem seem like it was an easy path but when you started this company the the environment was not like it is today and so i guess i'm curious how you think the the sort of world has changed for entrepreneurs who are looking to tackle something hard and deep and difficult like you are and any advice that you have for folks who are kind of at the early stage of that journey
2: well number 1 i think it's fantastic just the environment that's out there today for for starting new ventures. Um, I'm, I'm a capitalist and I think that the system can work well and respond well, um, as long as it's getting the right signals. And I think now finally the, the market is respond, responding in the right way to the climate crisis that we have on our hands here. Um, it's only getting worse of course. And so, um, there's, there's tremendous pressure to, to bring new solutions to bear. And I think we need extremely strong entrepreneurs to, to be working on climate. Um, I think, um, I'm biased, of course, but I th- I think it is the biggest problem of our day today, and um, it's one that affects everybody. And and you know whether that's uh, you know the angle of of climate justice, um, which is you know p- part and parcel to every person that 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 exists on the world, or um, or it's uh, you know more of a naturalistic approach, right? We, we want to save the trees, you know, the literal tree huggers, um, and everything in between. I think it's it's the it is the topic of our times and um so having the kind of capital available today that that is encouraging people to start things and encouraging people to bring innovative um, perspectives and skill sets um and passion uh, to to the problems um is is absolutely fantastic so uh i i'm just excited to see you know everything that that is happening in the space broadly from you know seed funds that are out there today uh to to really large private equity firms which are putting climate impact funds together um, it's it's just fantastic. There, there really is the full capital stack out there, and if you're uh, a good entrepreneur and you're um, you've got good ideas, uh, you can get funded today. And and so you know, I would just encourage people that this is you know it's a welcoming world, so to speak, uh, for for entrepreneurs. And if you're thinking about it, um, just get started.
1: Yeah, but who's the best investor that they should talk to? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, clearly EIP is at the very top of that list. But uh, <laughs> oh, what a
1: coincidence <laughs> yeah. that I ah, cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, we, and I should say as well, um, you know, th- it does matter, of course, who your investors are, and um, and I think that that is one thing that that is characterizing um, the investors that are relatively new to the space. They do know now that it's going to require more patience than what. Um, you know what a let's say a software company might might typically require and and there's no gap there in the way that there was maybe in cleantech 1.0 uh you know 10ish years ago where where the realistic expectations were just you know or they were unrealistic I should say the expectations about about time for um success and and um, and so that that's also really changed and our investors have been great from the beginning of course we've we've got uh, very patient deep-pocketed investors and that's who you know we were lucky enough to to bring into the cap table there um, but that's been followed up by by other phenomenal investors, including EIP, of course. Um, but um, but it's just a uh, an impressive array of types of investors that are out there who have the right mindsets um, and who have the right pools of capital for just about any kind of venture venture in climate that you that you may be thinking about. Matteo, thank you so much for coming back. Shale, it was a pleasure. Hopefully, uh, not four years again until until we talk in the show again. And uh, uh, going forward, of course. Form is gonna be a lot more transparent about what we are working on. And we hope to bring a lot of people along for the journey. So it's exciting times. Thanks. Got
1: to deploy a lot of Nasoya storage.
2: That's right, for sure.
1: <laughs> Mateo Jarmillo is the CEO and co-founder of Form Energy. What did you think of the show? Give us a rating or review. Let us know what, how we're doing. Uh, give us ideas for future podcasts. Tweet at us at, at interchange show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. If you work for Nasoya, the tofu company, and you want to get in touch about a brand partnership, just let us know and we will connect you to Form Energy happily. The Interchange is produced by PostScript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange.